Number 313, we've been asked by Brother Glenn if we would to mark that, and we're happy to do that. As was mentioned earlier, as Roger did that in our announcements, we are so thankful that each of us have been able to assemble and to gather tonight as I look over the audience and see the blessings that has been bestowed on each of us. Truly, it is a grand thing to think of this first day of the week and that you and I have been privileged to devote ourselves to spend it in the way that we have. We do continue to be mindful of those on our sick list and these others who today have been ravaged by storms nearby and even elsewhere. And we do certainly uh, thank Brother Wendell for leading us in that prayer. And we're also each mindful, I'm sure, to be earnest in prayer for those who continue to suffer in so, so very many ways. I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Ezekiel again in the Old Testament. As we continue our series of studies on that noble major prophet of the Old Testament, as you keep in mind with me our study of this book of Ezekiel, we do find ourselves in that set of books that often are regarded as those major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, some five books that captivate as we give thought to the time frame in which those books take place. And we have found ourselves in the book of Ezekiel now for a few Sunday evenings. And over the course of that study, I think we've each been reminded that those words stated by God so long ago to Ezekiel have so many meaningful thoughts, profound considerations, and challenging thrusts that really make a substantial difference in your life and in mine. As surely as we understand that that law that was in place then is not the law beneath which we live now. We live in a better one. And thus, how much more careful, how much more earnest, and how much more devoted should we be than even they were? It is with that in mind tonight that these opening thoughts serve as a reminder of some of what we have seen. From an initial lesson dealing with the matters of Ezekiel's person, to a lesson dealing with the characteristic of his call by God, to a lesson dealing especially with God's judgment as it was rained on the nation of Israel, and particularly that southern kingdom of Judah. We saw in the lesson following that the marvelous magnitude of their abominations and how far they had fallen from the faithfulness that should have characterized their walk. When we gave study to the following lesson, the one dealing especially with Zedekiah, we found there that here was history written before his time. You and I know that only the God of heaven can do that. The human family cannot say with detail what will happen tomorrow, next week, surely not ten years from now. And yet it was foretold exactly and specifically what would befall Zedekiah when it came to pass in Jeremiah 52. Should that not have been a wake-up call to the people of Judah? And ought not the sacred scriptures then be a wake-up call to each of us today because those matters written have come to pass dealing with Christ, dealing with the church and its establishment. The last two lessons have taken us to the parable of individ the parable we saw about the eagle and the vine. And then we did see, did we not? In the latter part of that lesson, a touching scene as it gave us the impressive matter of how that even though the fathers may have eaten sour grapes, the children's teeth were not set on edge. Tonight, as we come to chapters 20 and 21, we find two additional chapters that took place in a time frame ebbing closer and closer to Jerusalem's destruction. It was a time frame that, in fact, we will note as we begin the lesson in a moment, but a time frame that I'll try to remind us of even as we move in that direction at this time. You'll notice chapter 20 begins 
in the following way. And it begins in what may appear to be an extraordinarily positive fashion. I'd invite you to just notice the rather rapid way in which that chapter begins. It simply says, And it came to pass in the seventh year, in the fifth month, the tenth day of the month, that certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me. As often as we have noted so far in the book that God's judgment was portrayed rather certainly, very vividly, very directly, and yet now on this occasion we find that certain of those elders in Israel, who of course were in captivity by the river Kibar in Babylon, they came before Ezekiel. The appearance and the apparent objective of their mission was to be instructed they wished to, in fact, hear what God had to say through Ezekiel to them and to the nation. Doesn't that sound positive? Does it sound as if maybe there is a movement in the right direction? Maybe there is repentance on the horizon. Maybe there is other obedience on the horizon with these elders turning their attention with a desire to hear what God through Ezekiel would have to say. I would invite you to notice the next two verses. Then came the word of the Lord unto me, saying, with these elders gathered, you notice that God gave Ezekiel an especial word, a particular message for those elders. Verse 3 says, Son of man, speak unto the elders of Israel and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord, Are ye come to inquire of me? As I live, saith the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. And immediately you and I quickly appreciate the fact that what we might have expected to be so positive, what we might have expected to be so compelling in its movement toward a better day for Judah, God now has a far different response, doesn't He? It was through Ezekiel that God to them said, You folks will not be inquired of by me. I wonder what God meant by that and why. Would God be so harsh in His response to them? Why might it be that He on this occasion did not respond to them in what might be described as loving kindness and mercy? It will be our task through the remainder of chapter 20 because you'll notice God answers that question. Just as surely as they might have pondered, why has God reacted this way? We find God already giving the answer before they, before they respond beginning in verse number 5 and continuing really until verse 44. We have God's detailed, exquisite, and profound answer. Those answers will begin as we give thought to this. You'll notice that verse number 1 pointed out that the dating or the time frame of this message is again a matter of intense interest. He says again in the seventh year in the fifth month, you and I must go all the way back to chapter 8, on which occasion Ezekiel previously dated his last set of oracles. I say that because, again, other of the major prophets, like Jeremiah, do not date their matters that way, and hence it's more challenging to put them in chronological order. With Ezekiel, it's easy. He tells us exactly when these particular matters by God came to him, and therefore he informs us in the seventh year of his captivity. This would have brought us then to the year 590-591. We are now very, very near. It would appear only perhaps three and a half years, maybe as much as four, to the destruction of Jerusalem. You'll notice several months have passed since our last dating by Ezekiel, and now we notice that the time is getting very near. 
Will the people respond? Will there be an extension of God's mercy? You'll notice as we begin, God moved Ezekiel to share with them some matters that will captivate us, I believe, as well as we look at verses 5 through 44. Verse number 4 begins it like this. Wilt thou judge them, son of man? Wilt thou judge them? Cause them to know the abominations of their fathers. I freely confess that we are now in a section of the book of Ezekiel that has caused no small amount of consideration throughout the centuries, primarily because of its graphic nature. I realize sometimes you and I are reminded as we watch the television that there's a PG on the screen reminding us that parental guidance is in order. Sometimes we see an R that reminds us this is restricted. If there ever was a section of the Old Testament that might be such that one has to, in fact, describe it to children with a bit of caution, it would certainly be this section of Ezekiel. It will only be heightened as we arrive at chapter 23. But for tonight... Let us begin in verse number 5 and highlight some of the interesting matters that you and I are now about to see. I've tried to summarize it rather briefly because, quite frankly, it is one of the most interesting and storied summaries of Old Testament history to be found anywhere in the Bible. It is true that in Acts, we remember in chapter 7 when Stephen so powerfully preached, he rehearsed Old Testament history and did so in a way that prompted many to be very upset. Later on, Paul rehearsed a fantastic measure of Old Testament history in Acts 13. But now we come to God through Ezekiel rehearsing this and it goes like this. Help them to know their abominations. Cause them, Ezekiel, to recognize the nature of why I have reacted the way that I have. It begins like this in verse number 5. God says, even before the Egyptian oppression came upon you, I showed forth my love, I showed forth my mercy and my grace, my favor to you. He was speaking, of course, of the children of Abraham through Jacob as they went into Egypt back in the closing chapters of the book of Genesis. And as they did so, these opening thoughts come before us. Verses 5 through 9 of Ezekiel 20. In those verses, we basically read of this. God showed forth His love to them. He gave them instruction. Verse number 6. I lifted up mine hand, He would say. I gave them promise about a land flowing with milk and honey. I gave them promise about a better day lying ahead so long as they to me would be faithful. You'll notice in the very next verse, though, I ordered them to cast aside their idols, to cast aside that which was the abominations of the day. But now notice verse 8. How did those people of that far ancient day react? I read the first part of that verse. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. God says, I gave them my commandments. I gave them the promise that those commandments would lead them to understand, but yet they rebelled against me. What's more, they continued to pursue their idols. They continued to have little regard for my commandments. And so it was that verse 9 makes the following observation. In essence, we find in these verses God saying, I could have destroyed them then. I could by all right of heaven have destroyed them then because I gave them my commandment and I gave them the issue that led to the greatness of what my promise through them would be. 
They rebelled. They hearkened not. I could have destroyed them then, but we encountered that little three-letter word, but. I've tried to summarize it as you come near the bottom of that slide. And it's highlighted in the first few words of chapter, of verse number 9. But I wrought for my name's sake. Rather than destroy them then, I spared them. I gave them more opportunities. I wrought for, now, for my name's sake. That is the title I gave to the lesson tonight because that exact phrase occurs four times in this chapter. It's clear that that's a critical part of what God had in mind. Four times He will say, I wrought for my name's sake. By the time we close the lesson, we'll have a deeper appreciation of what that phrase means. But for now, let's continue the Old Testament history. God says, I spared them. I didn't destroy them in Egypt. I allowed them to come forth in the marvelous matter of those ten plagues and the resulting capability given to them. As they left, they proceeded to wander in a wilderness. As they wandered in that wilderness for some number of years, their way was sometimes difficult, often challenging. And you remember some of the explicit scenes with me. There were times they were without food, at least in the amount they wanted it. And so they besought the matter of the manna, and ultimately God provided that with them. And ultimately they were dissatisfied with that in Numbers 11 and besought meat. God said, I'll give you meat. But you may remember it didn't work the way that they thought it would. But might you remember that at Merah, they were without water. The water was bitter, wasn't it? And God gave order to make the water sweet. Isn't it true that we remember at Kibroth Hateva where there was burning of flesh and the lust that went with it? One more time, we find a people that was given a complaining, a people given a murmuring and grumbling. They seemingly were dissatisfied with anything Moses or Aaron or even God had done for them. You'll notice at the top of this slide one more time, God says, I might have destroyed them in the wilderness. I would have had every right to. A people who I had been so good to, unlike any other nation in the entire history of the world, I brought them out when there was not military in matter. I led them through a wilderness when you'll notice their shoes didn't wear out. They always had plenty to eat that I provided. I could have destroyed them then, but I didn't. You'll notice one more time in verse 14, this begins the verse, but I wrought for my name's sake. One more time, God uses that phrase to indicate His sparing character toward them. And then God quickly continues His Old Testament history. In this matter related to their journey through the wilderness, He now notes that while they were journeying in that wilderness, they were continually given to sin. They maintained their subservience to the idols of Egypt. They continued their interest in the things I condemned. God said, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And they carried with them many of the idols they'd taken right out of Egypt. They didn't destroy them. They didn't cast them aside. One more time, God says, I could have destroyed them then, but I didn't. You'll notice as he continues his history, he brings us to the next element or stage in Old Testament history. You'll notice as they arrived at the land of Canaan, after some 40 years of travel, 40 years of difficulty... They came to a land that this chapter describes very interestingly. I'd invite you to notice even how an early part of the verse, early part of the chapter presents it, verse number six. 
It says a land flowing with milk and honey. That exact phrase you and I so often use relative to that land. But then there's another phrase that follows it. It says, which is the glory of all lands. Picture it with me if you would. And you recall from the days of Abraham how that it was so. There was on, one, on the one hand that he and Lot, you may remember, were so blessed by God that there was so much cattle that the land wasn't able to sustain both of them at the same place and time. And so Abraham, in the generosity of the moment in Genesis 13, allowed Lot, you make the first choice and I'll go the opposite direction. The text is very clear, isn't it, that Lot chose the well-watered plains of Jordan. And indeed they were. In that ancient era, long before the human family destroyed things or has caused things to be less than pristine, it was the glory of all lands. And the people of Israel had the privilege of looking forward to inhabiting it because God promised that it would be theirs. You'll notice even after they came to that place, one more time, God in richness said, Follow my commandments. Obey that which I have given you, and this land shall be yours perpetually. No one will ever be able to remove you, to remove you from it. But you'll notice very clearly the following statements are made. God says they continued to serve their idols. They continued to pursue that which was not my bidding. They continued to live in ways that were despicable and disobedient. They continued to follow the things which I had condemned. I could have destroyed them then, but I didn't. I wrought for my name's sake. One more time, we encounter a phrase that again has occurred twice before. You'll notice in light of all of that, it's interesting that this chapter, and I'm reading now in verse number 18, he even makes note to the following generations. Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourselves with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them and hallow my Sabbaths. And they shall be a sign between me and you that ye may know that I am the Lord your God. God says, those fathers, those elders of that ancient time, they didn't obey me, and hence I approached the children. I sent my prophets and others to forewarn them about the urgency of this, and I urged them to follow me. I wonder if they did. Next verse. Notwithstanding, verse 21, the children rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them. At this point, we are beginning to see a rather extensive Old Testament history. And I'm sure those elders, as they sat there listening to God through Ezekiel say this, maybe they thought far better of them in their past history than what rightfully should have been thought. Isn't it interesting, in light of all of that, we come near the bottom of that slide to verse number 23. And God, beginning in the previous verse, says, Nevertheless, I withdrew mine hand and wrought for my name's sake, that it should not be polluted in the sight of the heathen, in whose sight I brought them forth. I lifted up mine hand unto them also in the wilderness, that I would scatter them among the heathen, and disperse them through the countries. This people, you see, as they were in a pious sense, coming before Ezekiel and acting as though they wanted to hear the things of God, they weren't sincere in it. Their heart wasn't in their presence there. It was a show. It was a pretense. 
And that's one of the first observations that we'll make this evening. God doesn't accept pretense. He doesn't accept hypocrisy. He looks into your heart and He looks directly into mine. And He knows where our heart is involved and He knows what our thoughts are and He knows whether we really mean what we appear to. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in His sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. Those famous words of Hebrews 4.13. Do we not recall that text in Proverbs 15.3 in which there we read, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Didn't the psalmist also say in Psalm 19, 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of mine heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Even to the very meditation of our heart, these elders gave the impression that all was well when all was not well. You might remember that these groups had already been addressed back in chapters 14 or 13 and 14. And in so doing, doesn't it bring us to really what the next slide is going to entail? This next slide causing us to appreciate the following. It is at this point in the chapter that we encounter a statement that has been the source of some measure of discussion. I'd like you to notice it as I read it. In verses 24 and 25, God again says, "...because they had not executed my judgments." but had despised my, my statutes and had polluted my Sabbaths. And their eyes were after their father's gods, wherefore I gave them also statutes that were not good, and judgments whereby they should not live. And I polluted them in their own gifts, in that they caused to pass through the fire all that openeth the womb, that I might make them desolate to the end, that they might know that I am the Lord. You'll note particularly two phrases that occurred. God said, I gave them statutes that were not good. And He said, I polluted them. So are you and I to take from this that God literally gave them statutes, judgments, laws that in fact were not good. They were evil. We know that our God is the source of no evil. We understand the Scriptures on so many occasions help us appreciate that His goodness is absolute and it's far-reaching to infinity. We see that the grammar as well as the context helps us see that the people had rebelled. God had made known to him, to them His laws. He had made known to them His statutes and His commandments. This statement that God makes here is He then allowed them the free choice to respond in the way that they preferred. He didn't make them obey. He set before them the promise of life if they did. And He set before them the curse of eternal judgment and punishment if they didn't. But He did leave the choice to them. That's what He meant by the fact that I gave them statutes that were not good. And that's what He also meant when He made note of the next verse, I polluted them in their own gifts. Notice, He identifies what those gifts were. They caused their children to pass through the fire. God never commanded that. They did. He went on to say in that same verse that they chose to be desolate. God again didn't command that, but they chose it. The permissiveness of God is a grand thing, isn't it? He didn't make you or me as robots. He did not make us to have to respond in love to Him. 
He has set before us the nature of the promise on the one hand, but the eternal judgment on the other. With that, verse 27 brings us to the next element in this chapter. And you'll notice that things were so bad that there's a powerful statement in verses 29 and 30. I'd invite you to notice it, that here God, as He says, He brought them into this land of Canaan, bringing them to this location that was this glory of all lands. How did they react to it? Verse 29, Then I said unto them, What is the high place whereunto ye go? I would invite you to notice God asked them a question. When the people of Israel came into that promised land, first thing that God says they did was orchestrate and locate places of idolatry. They were called high places. They were places on knobs or elevated hills in which they could, before others, take care of their sacrifices to these various and sundry gods. Thus God's question, What is the high place whereunto ye go? And then the answer, And the name whereof is called Bema unto this day. I'd invite you to notice, the people had not named these high places prior to God's question. But after God asked them that question, they named the high places high places. Naming them after the very question that God asked, and you'll notice the word Bema literally means high places. Isn't that fascinating? That they were so steeped in their idolatry, so steeped in their disobedience to God, they used the very word God gave them to name the places where they offered sacrifices and other service to these idols. Almost unfathomable, isn't it? No wonder God says, This group, I'll not be inquired of by them. On we journey as we proceed through the chapter. You'll notice that God does overwhelmingly say in the verses that follow that He would rule over them. Whether they liked it or not, God would rule over them. That's another grand lesson for you and me. You'll notice He had extended for centuries the opportunity for them to respond to Him in loving favor and in humble obedience, but they had rejected it. Now they're about to go into captivity whether they like it or not. And they're about to be sent to a place where for their iniquities they would for 70 years remain in a desolate, dry place. A further distance, of course, from the temple and that attribute which they had loved so much. God would reign over them. It is sad they didn't learn it so many decades earlier. Maybe that helps us see what a foolish decision we make if we stubbornly reject the offer of God's love and His commandments thinking that we know better, thinking that man knows better, when after all, isn't it still the case that God is the one that's wise? We learn in 1 Corinthians 1 that even the weakness of God is stronger than men, and even as it's described there, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Verses 25 and following of that chapter. Isn't it interesting that as you come near the close of this chapter, you notice that as he continues to describe these things, One more time in verse number 44, that same statement occurs again. I have wrought with you for my name's sake. Let's then cast the spotlight on that phrase. What did God mean by that? All four occurrences in this chapter in which God used that phrase, all of them were attached to the following idea. I wrought for my name's sake that the heathen might not rejoice or glory in them. Picture it with me. 
God had cast His love and greatness on this children of Israel. He had brought them out of Egypt. He had taken them to this land. If it was the case then that God rejected them, He allowed, he allowed them to fall and crumble then, it would have given occasion for the surrounding nations to say, Ha! This people, supposedly that God was with them, clearly He isn't now. They would have been able to make a mock of the name of God and they would have been able to, in lightness and in insult, treat the things of God in essence, polluting His name. That idea rings so powerfully throughout the rest of the Scripture, doesn't it? God's a jealous God, and He will not be insulted. He will have the last laugh, if you please. And today, when you and I as Christians choose to live foolishly, choose to live far beneath our privileges, as Christians, all we do is distort and malign the name of God. And He will not tolerate it. He is too great. He is too mighty. And His cause is too worthy. No wonder the church must be prized so highly because, again, it bears the name of His Son. It was purchased with the blood of His Son. And the church in that characteristic and special nature is one that must never be trifled or trampled upon. Is it not described in Ephesians 5.27 in words like this? It is to be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That's the way it was purchased. That's the way it was established. And that's the way it must continue. That places a high degree of diligence then upon you and me, doesn't it, to live on a daily basis. Because, again, we never want to pollute His name. And we never want Him to rot for His name's sake to have to correct you or me in the ways He did ancient Israel. It is with that in mind that this chapter closes by observing in verses 45 to 49 a remarkable promise, a promise. It so often is true, isn't it, in the Bible that right next to a passage of judgment will be a passage of immaculate promise. And so it is again. This promise in verses 45 to 49, basically, if I might highlight it, looks toward a restoration you are going into Babylonian captivity. Remember, Ezekiel and others were already there, but Jerusalem itself was going to be destroyed in about three and a half years from this time, and they too will go into captivity. But God said there's coming a restoration, a time when you'll be able to return to the land, a time that you will respect my commandments, and a time when all will be much brighter for you. It would seem to me in light of those verses there is at least a hidden relation to the coming of Jesus centuries on down the road from that time. You'll notice one of the things about it that closes the chapter in verse 49. It shows again the hard-heartedness of the people before whom Ezekiel was speaking. It says, Then said I, Ah, oh, Lord God, they say of me, Doth he not speak parables? They had heard Ezekiel for 19 chapters now talking about judgment and talking about hardship and difficulty in Jerusalem's destruction. And Ezekiel here responded to God and said, God, they're going to get on to me for speaking in parables. Chapter number 21, God will rectify that situation. Rather than speaking in parables, God will now in plainness identify some things that begin like this. It's another chapter where we find three items presented, visual illustrations about the lessons we're about to see. On the one hand is a sword. 
On the other hand is a sigh. And finally, we encounter a signpost. All of them, very powerful in their presentation. Let's sketch them briefly as we look somewhat quickly at the matters of chapter 21. It all begins with a sword. And you'll notice that immediately statements are made that tie it right to the end of chapter 20. You may notice in verses 45 and 46 of chapter 20, God told Ezekiel to set his face toward the south. That sounds like a very broad and ambiguous reference. Where in the south? There's a lot of countries to the south. We now notice as chapter 21 opens, no more parabolic statements. You'll notice in verses 2 and 3, God says, I'm talking about Jerusalem. I'm talking about the city, and this is what I have to say. What plainness of speech is about to be seen. No more parables in presentation for this chapter at least. Immediately we give thought to God's usage of a sword. And in verses 3 through 7, this sword is being wielded in a powerful way. And it's described on a number of occasions with two adjectives. I'd invite you to notice some of the ways that the chapter presents it. First of all, it is sharpened. Second of all, it is polished. Two of them. This is not a dull sword, and it's not one that's not brilliant in its presentation. It's both polished and sharpened. And God says He's the one using it. Man is not the one. He goes on to say rather quickly in verse number 4, I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Everybody, you're going to suffer beneath the matter of judgment I have to present. Everybody, old and young, educated and not, man and woman, it matters not, young and righteous, or old and wicked, all are going to suffer. God's judgment was coming and it was going to be something they could not avoid no matter how much they tried. You'll notice as you look at the way that that sword is described, there were going to be those in verse 8 that were going to mock at it. You can imagine, again, through Jeremiah, through the other prophets that had preceded, you can just imagine some of the people say, we've heard this before. It hadn't happened yet. God now says, I'm telling you, it's just about here. The sword is in my hand and I'm about ready to use it. Jerusalem was soon going to be destroyed. And when you and I read Jeremiah 52 and 2 Kings 25, we see in those chapters the destruction described by these verses. It did come to pass. And as you and I reflect on what followed, you'll notice that there were to be those in verse number 7 that were going to be weak as water. If you have an interest to do so, you might take a note about the question in the bulletin that you should have answered by next Sunday. This phrase, weak as water, you and I hear that phrase from time to time. It originated in the Word of God. You'll notice that weakness is highlighted by the fact that there were even going to be many others that would succumb to that sword. It wasn't just going to be the lowly people. Even the kings and princes would suffer. Verses 12 and 13 read, Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people, it shall be upon all the princes of Israel. Terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite therefore upon thy thigh. You'll notice a moment ago I mentioned these visual illustrations. Jer uh, rather Ezekiel, as a part in this, also had a sword. And you can imagine as he went through the streets day by day, striking it on, on his leg, as a final reminder, one other message, God's holding a sword. 
May we listen with intensity and may we listen with care. As you notice him wielding that sword, it brings you to next appreciate that Ezekiel was told something else. He was told to sigh, S-I-G-H. Again, it was to be a public spectacle. He was to sigh in public. And as we read the chapter, we learn quickly the people were asking him, What are you doing, Ezekiel? And you can imagine, the very description of it is a very deep and profound sigh. Even so much, he was bent over, literally. Can you imagine him walking, perhaps falling on the ground, almost as if he was in pain, but in sighing? That sigh was to be to them a lesson. This is what's coming. This is how you're going to react. This is what's going to happen when Babylon comes near for the final time. Maybe that sigh leads us to a picture that looks like first that sword. I thought as we looked at the terrible intensity of the sword and gave some appreciation to the matters inherent in it, we could see one more time. Can you imagine a man walking around with that, something like it? Can you imagine a man who was so deeply hurt that he sighed in a public way that caused the people to recognize this is God's message? It is with that in mind that the last sign in the chapter given, beginning in verse number 18, is the signpost. If you look there on the right, you'll notice that God instructs Ezekiel to go out of town and to put up a literal signpost. And there were to be two words on the signpost. You and I perhaps have seen television shows where someone's traveling along the way and there's a fork in the road. One destination is off to one way, the other destination somewhere else, and a decision has to be made. In this instance, Jerusalem was off to the right, Rabbah was off to the left. That sign was so terribly significant. Let me briefly illustrate, and that will be near the close of our lesson. The people of Israel, these that were in captivity, as well as those still in Jerusalem, were under a very strong impression. They were under the impression, according to the book of of Jeremiah, that the throne of David could never be overthrown because God had said, I will perpetually remain with it. And thus they thought that no matter how bad things looked, it would never be completely defeated. They knew that there was Egypt off to their southwest, and they knew Babylon was off, of course, to the northeast. The people were under the impression that if Babylon came, that in essence they would be diverted off to Rabbah, off to Ammon, which is of course in, in the, on the other side of the Jordan River. And thus there in that diversion at least Jerusalem would be spared. In these verses God says when Babylon comes they're taking the fork that leads to Jerusalem. I'm telling you, the people didn't believe it. They didn't want to trust in that. But God through Ezekiel says, I'm telling you, they're taking the fork that's coming your way. And sure enough, in 587-586 B.C., Babylon did come from the north. And they did come to the fork, and they did turn their attention directly to Jerusalem. They did not go to Ammon. Ammon would suffer later. Their time was yet to come, but Jerusalem was up first. Might I say to you, the signpost was a powerful symbol. May I say that in verse number 27, as you come near the close of this chapter, there's a triple usage of an interesting word. 
It says, I will overturn, overturn, overturn it, and it shall be no more until he come whose right it is, and I will give it him. Three times God says, I'm going to overturn it. Jerusalem, the temple, all of it. I've had enough. The signpost was a powerful symbol. May I suggest that you and I all have signposts. God has powerfully stuck it in, in our life, and may we with wisdom recognize to follow the one that leads to Calvary, the one that leads to Christ, the one that leads to eternal life. Satan, of course, is the other destination in your life and mine that so often captures our attention. May we in wisdom not travel that roadway. It is true that the last element in the chapter then helps us see the signpost in its significance had to be something that led to many questions. What's this Ezekiel doing out there putting a signpost up? Specifically when it says Jerusalem, that way. When, when, when Ezekiel specified what that meant, I wonder how the people reacted. As the chapter closes, we're left in, in many ways to wonder. It seems as if their hearts were still hardened and they did not respond as you would hope they would. It would seem as we begin chapter number 22 next time, it'll be another chapter that highlights the grandness of just how hard they had become. I'd invite you then to tune in as we come to that next occasion, as we look at chapters 22 and following. But for tonight, may I ask that we close the lesson with these quick thoughts. We've learned tonight about a signpost. We've learned about a sword We've learned about a sigh, and we've learned about an extensive Old Testament history, all of which ought to be a benefit to us. Are you walking the pathway that leads on the right way to God? Are you, in fact, in a position where you must sigh daily because of your sin? Are you, in fact, one currently beneath the terror of the sword of God? If you can't answer all of those in the way that they need to be answered for safety and eternal safekeeping tonight, why not come to the Lord? The plan of salvation demands you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God, and be baptized. If we could be of assistance to you tonight, it would be our delight. If you have begun that walk with the Lord, but faithfulness currently does not describe you, why not beseech brethren for prayers of strength and encouragement? and beseech God for forgiveness. Tonight we would be honored to aid you in any way that we can. We would only ask in love that you let us know the way we can help. As we use Ezekiel to help us on that way, may we follow that signpost leading into life. Jesus did say, few there be that find it. Don't you want to be numbered amongst the few? If we could help you in the way tonight, why not come while together we stand together and sing?